Amen. Would you join our choir in standing as we read from God's word? Our scripture today will be in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, as well as the 14th chapter of the book of John. What you'll read on the screen, if you have your device or your scripture, it starts in verse 4, but I'm going to ad-lib and we're going to start a little bit earlier, but I talk fast, you'll be okay. So starting in verse 1, there was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and a Maphramite. This is the part I want you to hear. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Pania. Pania had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. And now let's jump to verse 4. So whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she could not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorstep doorpost of the Lord's house, and in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put your wine away. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went on her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their homes in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I've asked the Lord for him. In the gospel of John, the 14th chapter, Jesus speaking, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And can we thank our choir for the extra efforts they do? this time of year. You ready? All right, let's go. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did 
as they saw fit. This is the final verse in the book of Judges, and it sets the context for this gripping story that we've just heard together. The country and the culture of Israel at this time were a mess. Right After the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the revelation at Mount Sinai, the 40 years in the wilderness, followed by the conquest of Canaan, and even the promised land, things have fallen apart for Israel. And there's some notable outliers in the book of Judges, but on the whole, Israel is moving in the wrong direction. The ending of Judges, we find Israel with a vacuum in both leadership and in their morality. So as Judges ends with the text, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did what they saw fit, we get a glimpse that God's chosen people, this chosen group of people, are not experiencing abundance and they're not flourishing. What lies ahead for them is unknown, and it's in this context that we meet Hannah. And we can see remarkably quick that Hannah herself is in a very tough place. Hannah herself is in a season of deep unfulfillment. We quickly get acquainted with Hannah through the lens of comparison. I wanted to read those first scriptures for you to set the context because I think we had like six or seven names and the cities, and all of that is important for a couple of reasons. One, the author puts those things in here to signify that this is a real story about real people at a real time. It can be placed in history. So all of those names and genealogy is incredibly intentional, saying uh, this is no fairy tale, as Eugene Peterson speaks about this. This is not a sit down at night and tell a little story that might have happened. This is a real story with real people in history. Uh, But for our purposes today, I want us to see that all of those names framing this family was also to communicate that Elkanah, this, this husband, comes from some pretty amazing stock. He comes from a very, a family with legacy. He comes from a family that's known, a family that has lived on, has a past. So this history of the family is clear, but the tension that we see connected to that is although Elkanah, this husband, comes from this legacy of family, we find out that he's married to a woman with no future. The future line of the family will not continue on through Hannah. The legacy of the past is juxtaposed by the emptiness of the future. We have a fruitful family with a barren Hannah. For both Israel and for Hannah, a rich history with a barren present with an uncertain future. Her barrenness alone is heavy enough to hold the tension in this text. It's heavy enough to hold the conflict in this story. But the conflict and her pain will continue to build and to grow throughout this story. We find out that she's one of two wives. The other wife is able to have children, and she is not. Hannah is in a polygamous marriage, and we'll continue to see how horrible it was for her to be in this family and to be connected to this other wife, Penina. Now, for a moment, I want to pause about this because we got to talk about this just for a moment. It's not the point of the message. 
But for those who have claimed and argued that God has shifted somehow over the course of time as to what marriage looks like, because look, here's an example of polygamy. I want to suggest to you to really look at the examples of the scripture and see if you can find it really being a positive, really working out where all parties feel loved and cherished and honored. Um, I think what we will see when you look, I, I haven't found anywhere where God commands for people to take up multiple wives. And when the examples are there of multiple wives, it's the same kind of conflict present that we see here. For me, the overall narrative of marriage in the Bible is one with a husband and wife and mutual submission to one another for the glory of God. So don't get sidetracked by that. It's a sermon for another time. Greg's going to do that sermon soon, I think. <laughs> but I want you to see the tension between these two wives. And I would argue that Hannah, from what we see in this text, is someone, and I know this is a big word, is someone who has experienced trauma as a result of being in this marriage arrangement. It's important to note that some would suggest, and I think you can see some evidence of this in the scripture, that the second wife was probably taken because of the infertility. In that time, the importance of the family line continuing was paramount. And remember the legacy of this man. We, we have a whole verse with six or seven names and, and generation after generation with a barren wife, the future of the family was at stake. So commentators will argue that to keep the family line intact was the reason for the second wife. Right? You and I live at a time where if there's infertility, there's options. At least there's options we can try. And it's highly possible that for this family, a second wife was the only option. But I think we can infer from this text that between the two wives, Elkanah has a special kind of love for Hannah as compared to his other wife. When we compare the actions and the words that he expresses towards Hannah versus the actions and the lack of words that he expresses towards Penina, there's a clear difference that emerges from the text. In verse 4 and 5, whenever the day came for Elkanah to sac sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters, but, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Why? Because he loved her because he loved her. In a time where people were doing what was right in their own mind, we find an example of a man who is traveling to do his worship, to be consistent, that God for him was someone he wanted to please. And it's in this context of worship that we get a little glimpse into his affection and his deep love for his wife, Hannah. It's in, within the context of his faithfulness to God, we get this detail about his love for Hannah. Verse six and seven speaks to how this reality played out in daily life. While Hannah has a husband who loves her, we find that the other wife reminds her often that love is not enough. That although Hannah may have the love of Elkanah, Penina's got the kids. Hannah might have the love, but Penina has the line and the lineage. And the text tells us in verse 7 that Hannah endured this kind of torture of being reminded of this reality year after year. Can you imagine living in a home, some of you have, where it would be so hard to wake up every day, year after year, being reminded, being teased, being tortured about what you're not, about what you can't have, about what you can't do in your own family. She was so distraught that the text tells us that her pain caused her to weep 
and she was unable to eat. I would imagine there's some of us who can understand that. I can imagine in a room this size, in a day like today, there's some of you who would say, I'm kind of there right now. Where the pain of what you're not, of what you're reminded of all the time, of what you don't have, of what you haven't accomplished, about the whatever's going on in your life, being reminded to the point where you are, as I think Hannah is, depressed. Bring tears to your eyes, no appetite. I think we would say that Hannah's depressed here, not being able to have children and having that being constantly thrown in her face by her enemy. Honestly, a truly mean person has taken a toll on her life. Right, but there would be some who argue, but at least she's got a great husband, right? I mean, he loves her. He, she gets double portions at, at the sacrifice. I, I'm not so sure. Let's look at this a little deeper. The story continues to bring some more complexity to Hannah's life as we get a little glimpse into what her relationship was like with her husband. Now, I think it's fair to say that as far as Old Testament husbands go, Elkanah has some really lovely qualities. He's clearly a man who loves God, who's consistent in worship at a time where worship was corrupt. We see a man who sincerely loves his wife in a world where her not being able to have children uh, would, would kind of qualify in some respects to not love her. He loves his wife beyond procreation. There's some lovely pieces to him. But as we have spoken about, let's not underestimate and overcommunicate how significant bearing children was at this time. So we see that he loves her and he's providing for her, but I would argue he's no perfect man because in verse 8, with his wife clearly in a place of pain, not eating, weeping, crying, and this is his response to her in verse 8. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? I don't know, maybe because your other wife's been tormenting her? Just, just an idea. And then this one, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, I would say this is a very well-intended attempt by Elkanah to help Hannah. But I will also say that it falls very short and that he's reading the situation pretty poorly. I would hope that if he had come to my office, explained the situation, that I would have been wise enough to say, Elkanah, here's, I, I hear that draft of what you're thinking about saying, and it's good for you to get it out. I think that's really healthy. But I think this would probably be a time for you not to ask her if you mean something to her, but this might be a really important time for you to remind her of what she means to you. Right? How much more powerful would have the response been if he said, no, Hannah, you mean more to me than 10 sons. Think about the context. So where are we? What's the full story of Hannah? And for today, I would argue that Hannah is a woman living a very unfulfilled life. She cannot have children, living in a verbally, at minimum, abusive home with her abuser, married to a man who is well-meaning, but clearly, in this moment, unable to connect with her emotionally. This is the tension of this story. This is the situation. The stage is set. The pain, the problem is clear, and it's dire. And if we're reading it for the first time, you want to keep going. What will happen? 
How will this change? And it all begins to change with three words in verse 9. Hannah stood up. Hannah stood up. Three words that for me went unnoticed for a long time in my study. Three very intentional words that are remarkable when you really think about Hannah's context. Three words that show the strength and faith of Hannah. Three words that showed where Hannah took steps in her time of grief and in her time of pain. Three words that are an example for us when we find ourselves in a place of grief and pain. Hannah stood up. Hannah made a move. And we see that Hannah stood up and made her move toward God. She made a move to commune and worship the living God in her time of difficulty. And in her standing up and heading to the Lord's house, as the text tells us, we see what faithful prayer and faithful worship looks like. And I think there's a ton of examples here for you and for me about what it looks like to truly worship God, to stand up and make a move towards God. I would say Hannah, the story of Hannah is so rich. Chapter 2 is even remarkably rich when we hear the song that she puts together in Thanksgiving. But let me allow, allow me just to share a couple of observations about what Hannah's response, the result of moving towards God and how it can speak to us. The first one is this. I want you to notice in her, her prayer what I'm calling the raw petition. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Her grief led her to God. More than that, her grief belonged in the presence of God, and it belonged in the physical place of worship. Can't you just feel Hannah's raw state? In her deep anguish, she prayed to the Lord. And while she prayed, it says that she wept bitterly. We will soon see in this story, as we've read, how unique and how different this was. But before we get there, let's just sit in this for a moment, just for a minute. Hannah's grief was having a hard time getting a hearing from her husband. Hannah's grief was being very, it was very difficult for her to connect her grief outside, in the outside world, isolation. But we see in the text that her grief found a home with God. Her grief had a home in the place of worship. She brought her raw state, her honest state, her true self with all the pain, all the grief, all the sadness, and she brought it directly to God. We see this time and time again in the Bible, Scripture calls these laments, where we bring all of it to the Lord. And it's worth noting this for some of us today, because my guess is that it's not just the story of Hannah. She's not the only person in history to have the kind of grief that doesn't feel connected to outside. That you might be in a time of grief where it's really hard for people to connect to that grief or to find a place where it's safe to share that grief. And I see in this story that we also have been invited to bring the deepest and the darkest, the most hopeless, the most unfulfilled longings in our lives directly to the God of the universe. It is welcomed. It belongs with God. And Lake Avenue Church, it belongs here. Hannah models this. 
Her prayer models to us what real prayer and real faith can look like in raw petition. Her prayer points us to a God who wants all of it from us. Another aspect of her prayer, that raw petition, but notice this, a prayer with both getting and giving. During her time of prayer, it says that she makes a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. I want us to notice this interaction, the depth of this kind of prayer. She is clearly asking God to get something. Specifically, that God would remember her and give her a son. That's what she wants. She wants the grief to stop. And in many ways, if that prayer gets answered for her, some of the trauma, some of the pain, I think we could assume would go away. Panina would need to quiet down a little bit because there's now a baby. Um, the, the loneliness that she is feeling, the isolation, it's possible that all she needed was for God to answer this prayer, provide this baby, and it would solve some of the pain in her life. But I am struck here that Hannah wasn't just asking God to get something, but makes a vow to give right back to God what he would give to her. The child she was asking for wasn't just for her pleasure or her identity, her own status, she vows that this child will be dedicated back to God for his purposes, for his pleasure, for his purpose. That's what all this razor touching the head language is about. It points us back to number six, about Nazarites being the kind of people who are marked for a special season of service to the Lord. And during that season, there's some things they're not to do. And one of them is not drink alcohol. The other one is not get a haircut. And again, Greg's going to touch on that later. It's a great sermon. But the point is this. In, in, in number six, when it's talked about Nazareth, it's for a season. And during the season, no haircuts, no alcohol. So when she says no razor will ever touch his head, she is not offering her son back to the Lord for an apprenticeship or for a small amount of time. It's a full offering back to God for his entire life. The kind of response that she's giving back to God isn't one with contingencies. It isn't one with time frames. It's a full devotion back to God. Give me this child. I'll give him right back to you so that he can do your work. It's remarkable. It was a prayer in which Hannah wants to, a son so to give that son right back to God. Another model here for us, a model of lordship, a model of seeing everything as coming from God and for God, a model that our prayers should both be of asking and giving back to God. The depth of this woman and her faith are incredible. Notice this, this last observation about her prayer. I'm calling it unintimidated worship. I don't want you to miss the drama. She's distraught, she's raw, she's in the place of worship, and it is so unusual the way she is communing with God that the priest, the person who has a job more like mine, is standing at the doorpost and watching her worship and accuses her of being drunk. Her devotion to God was mistaken for intoxication. And what we will find out is that her pain didn't take her to the bottle, her pain took her to the Lord. She wasn't pouring anything down her throat. The text says she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. 
So in her response, this unintimidated worship to, uh, to Eli, she says, I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I haven't been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and my grief. I call this unintimidated worship because everything about this interaction should be intimidating. You, you have just on a, a cultural level for a woman to speak to a man this directly to be accused of something, and then in that moment to, to, to respond, to defend. Very unlikely, very difficult, the kind of courage, bravery it would take for that. Now let's add the, the complexity of her justification for the way that she's being looked at is her devotion to God. And who's accusing her? Like the devotion to God expert of the time. Unintimidated. This wasn't how this goes. This is not how church is usually done in this context. You don't speak up to the priest. Clearly not congregational. Clearly. No emails written. No motions. So it was a time in worship with great liturgy, great specifics, traditions and worships, things you do, things you don't do. And Hannah right here is a pioneer for us. And she pioneers all in this story in a confident way of what worship can look like. It's a powerful and profound session of prayer and worship that Hannah demonstrates to all of this. And the outcome of this prayer, the outcome of this standing up, moving towards God, was that Hannah left in a different place than how she entered. I think she entered expectant to experience God, and she left having had experienced God. To use the theme of peace today, which is our theme, um, our Advent theme, she came to God with her unfulfilled longings and pain, and she left with an experience of peace. I, I want you to see what her experience was. There's something really important to note about this experience for peace for Hannah, but just as an aside, as a, as a pastor, I find great hope in this story through the story of Eli. Because Eli, I mean, he, he really messed up. He really missed this moment. It's not the only moment he's going to miss. We're going to see that again through this story. But what I love about this example is that God will use imperfect spiritual leaders to lead people towards himself. And that gives me hope personally, because here's, here's another one. So after Eli accuses her of being drunk, and she responds, he hears her. He believes her. And he changes his tune. Great humility. And shows that blessings can come from flawed people. And so he offers her this blessing in verse 17 when he says, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. But, but the, real, the real response, that was a little aside, the real response is about Hannah. Is that she receives that blessing and she actually offers one right back. I think there's a whole other sermon there about what we do when we're falsely accused of something. The posture we are to have. The confidence we can have with God. But she leaves her time of prayer and worship, and in verse 18 it says that she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. And what I love about this response of Hannah is that nothing had technically changed for her yet. Nothing technically had changed for Hannah, and yet she experienced peace. 
The word here for peace is a word, in, a word many of you have heard time and time again in church, the word shalom, much deeper than our catch-all word peace. Shalom speaks of a, of a completeness, of a fullness, of a type of wholeness. And so for Hannah, this fullness, this completeness was experienced prior to her specific prayer being answered. Hannah's experience of peace, I want you to hear this, was experienced prior to any kind of specific provision. And there's power that comes in this story, and it is central. The provision of this child, his name Samuel, who Samuel will become, how that lines up to David, it's profound. The child is the main point of the story, but I don't want you to miss the experience of peace that Hannah has prior to the child coming. We see, again, power in this story through the intimacy the next day between husband and wife that resulted in this baby. But there's power in observing that peace doesn't have to be connected to the tangible provisions of our requests, but that through relationship, through time with God, through intimacy with God, through raw petition, through, through confident worship, that peace can be experienced. Hannah left her time of worship changed, even though her circumstance had not. That's my prayer for us today. That as a result of being here and worshiping God, opening his word, that we leave changed, even though the circumstances of your life, you're probably going to have them right when you leave those doors. Peace is what God is in the business of providing. It's in the story, it's throughout history, and even today. So in this story, there's just so many lessons, and I, I trust that you're connecting with some. I mean, we could talk about in the midst of intense pain, Hannah stood up and she moved towards God, and what an example that is for us. And maybe that's something somebody needs to hear today. Or Hannah shows us what unrestrained devotion and worship and prayer can look like. And, and maybe you've never communed with God that way. Maybe that's speaking to you today. But on this second week of Advent, I want to focus more closely on what this story teaches us about the peace that comes from God. Let's remember the story just through these categories. We have a situation, a response, an experience. Remember the situation for Hannah, an unfulfilled life an unfulfilled longing to have a child, longing for peace in her home and in her life. And the response, she got up. She moved toward God in raw and unintimidated prayer and worship and made a vow to God. And her experience was what? She experienced shalom. She experienced peace even before the gift of this child. And the experience was that she got this child. And we will see that she follows through on her vow to God. Now, for Israel, because there's some similarities here. There's a parallelism here. Remember that Israel is in a place of an uncertain future and a barren time in their own history. And God uses this story, this woman, Hannah, to be part of the response that a child will be born from a very unlikely woman. And we can follow this story from here, and I think you should. It's, I just love 1 Samuel. Just keep reading. The drama continues. And we'll see that there will be a, a line to King David. There's a way of Samuel being used to get to this king. And so where Judges ends, that there's no king in the land, by the end of this story, we have King David. And it's not a perfect, it doesn't always, it's not from here on out, it's looking up for Israel. We know that Israel is going to have another barren season, many of them. But as a, on a whole, in the overall narrative, it's starting to look up for Israel. So in Advent, 
How does this connect? Well, on so many levels. Another child is going to be born from an unlikely mother. And this child is going to be dedicated to the Lord for his service. And this child has many, many names. But among them is the Prince of Peace. This child will take on the pain of the world. This child will take the sin of all mankind, all of the unfulfilled longings for all people, and through his death and resurrection, offer a way of peace and redemption and be the bringer of peace for all of creation. And it's not a generic, kind of distant, cosmic kind of feeling and hope of peace. It's a real peace. It's a peace that can be experienced. It's where we get to our John text. It's a peace that is accessible and available through Jesus. We don't have to travel annually to a temple and get the experience like Hannah. Jesus says in John 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and re- remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace is part of the provision of Jesus. Among many reasons, it is for peace that Jesus came. It is for peace that he was awaited for. And it is for peace that you and I ought to reflect on this Advent season. Provision of peace is found in Jesus. And I'm asking you to consider that deeply this Christmas season with all the things that still need to happen to get it all just right, your home, the gifts, the meals, to really for a moment think about this gift of Jesus through the idea of peace. It's profound. So how, we, how might we apply this? I trust that throughout this, the Holy Spirit lives in those of us who follow Jesus, and you've already been God speaking to you. But as I have been in prayer and discernment for us as a congregation, what... What is it I want to suggest we think about? I felt led to ask you, what are the unfulfilled longings in your life? Where do you need shalom? And is it possible that this particular season would be a season in which you admit that and you seek Jesus to fill that? I know us well, I'm part of us, almost 20 years. When I think about the conversations I have with so many of you, there's some major categories of, of some unfulfilled longings for us at Lake. One is, this is around, very, very literal to our text, is around children. This is so deeply personal for some of you because you are, have been unable to have children. I can't ultimately relate to that, but I can tell you that eight years ago, this weekend, when we were at Forest Home with a bunch of high school and junior high kids, um, we experienced a miscarriage on this particular weekend. It's just a small sliver of a deeper pain that so many of you have lived with and are living with. For some of you, it's maybe you have the children and they are grieving you right now. You made your vow to God. You dedicated them here. You dedicated them somewhere. You said, they're going to be for you, Lord. And the truth of it is that for so many of us, our kids aren't walking with Jesus. Our grandkids aren't walking with the Lord. And there is a deep, unfulfilled longing around the children that are even in our lives. And I don't have a pamphlet for you, 
I don't have a, a verse that I can just give you to make all that go away, but I can tell you this, that those longings and that pain and the anguish, the crying, the not eating, all of it belongs here. All of it belongs with God. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to deny it. It belongs as it is. Gosh, I pray that we continue to be a church and a people, not of accusation, but a place of raw, raw petition to God in the raw parts of life. There's also part of us, our unfulfilled longing of just relationships. Relationships in general. Some of us sit in physically different places because of some, some, some history. Or you sit alone and you just long to be more deeply connected to someone. For some, it's the marriage relationship. The deep longing to be married and that just hasn't been your story. And yet for so many of the married people here, if you're really honest, your own marriage is very unfulfilled. I'm more and more convinced the older I get, the more people we walk with, the more people I observe, how so unfortunately common it is to be in an unfulfilled marriage. Now, I don't, again, I don't have a pamphlet or a verse, but on this one I have something to offer you. Is that one of the things we do really well here at Lake is our marriage ministries. If you are in an unfulfilled marriage, and I encourage you to just simply Google marriage at Lake Avenue Church, and you'll see all of our resources. In fact, after the service, I do have a, a sheet of paper for you, and, and Frank and Corey Magana are going to be here, and if you want to talk, but there's ways we want to walk with you. So you might be in a marriage where you're in deep, deep crisis, where you're literally thinking right now, this is probably our last Christmas together. Or you've drawn up the paperwork, or you dream about drawing up the paperwork. And if that is where you are, I'm asking you to bring that real, raw pain and reality to God and let this church walk with you. But there's also some of you, and maybe it's not crisis, maybe it's not that extreme. That's really extreme, you're thinking. But at the end of the day, it's unfulfilled. And you think, is there, is there another level? And our marriage ministries speak to that too. I encourage you to Google, to get the sheet, to talk to somebody because Jenny and I have been through one of the, the, the programs that we do and I would say the experience of that for us is a next level of joy, next level of intimacy and that's available too. You don't have to be on the verge of divorce to have unfulfillment. I encourage you to look. But children and marriage, but ultimately I think there's an unfulfilled longing too for so many of even just Jesus. Maybe you long when you sing to have the words mean something deeper to you. Maybe you come every week longing to have a deeper, more full experience and you keep trying but it just feels dry. Or that this Christmas you really want to jump into the, the real meaning and the real story and it's difficult, a sincere longing to connect with God more meaningfully. And I wanna say to you, it's not just a candle that we light, it's a real baby that was born in history at a real time to real people and offers a real way towards peace. And might this be a Christmas season for you, an Advent season for you, 
where all of your unfulfilled longings, that you would bring them to God. And hear the story of Jesus, to hear the story of Christmas, and see how the Prince of Peace might show up in your life. I want to close us in prayer as the musicians come forward. And I'm simply going to pray some lyrics from Christmas carols. And I hope that as we read them and pray them, you see the great depth in them and how they speak to all of this. Will you join me in prayer? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear, the Prince of Peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel, shall come to thee, O Lake Avenue Church. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest, our peace in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne.